welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, we discuss the decline of marriage with people marrying later or not getting married at all. What does this mean when it comes to the family and the importance of long-term committed relationships? Has the rise of educated women and women in the workforce led to women being happier as a whole? Well, there's much to get into on this podcast, and I am delighted that Kay Heimowitz joins us. Kay Heimowitz is the William E. Simon Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of City Journal. She writes extensively on childhood, family issues, poverty, and cultural change in America. Heimowitz is the author of several books, the most recent being The New Brooklyn, What It Takes to Bring a City Back. She has written for numerous outlets, including the New York Times and the Washington Post, and is a frequent guest on numerous radio and TV programs. Kay, a pleasure to have you on She Thinks. Well, I'm so glad to be here. And of course, this is always, in my opinion, a fascinating topic to talk about the family and to talk about marriage, but we're releasing this on Valentine's Day, so I think it's a very appropriate topic to talk about. So I'm curious from you, if you could just start with some personal context, what caused you to delve into this issue of relationship and love and marriage? Why did you decide to study and research this issue area? Well, I actually started um, from the angle of children. I was studying education for a while and education policy. This was when my own children were uh, in the elementary school years, and I became interested in education naturally as I watched what was going on in the schools. Uh, And um, then from there, I became more interested in families and family structure, and I had grown up in a family that was very committed and involved in civil rights, and I, as I started to look at the data and study the issue a little bit more, I began to realize that the breakdown of the black family in particular, at the time it was mostly the black family, um, was was making it impossible to have the kind of progress for uh, in, in civil rights that, or in terms of black equality, black-white equality that, uh, that most of us were looking for. So that got me very interested in poverty and uh, the family. And then uh, as the white uh, family began to, the white working-class family began to disintegrate, uh, you know, then I got, got interested in inequality more, more generally. So first of all, let's let's start with some of the statistics. You talk about the decline of marriage, um, both in minority families, but also in white, um, middle to upper class families. What are the data points? How much of a decline are we seeing? Uh, so let's start um, with uh, the black family, because that's where we began to see the changes most dramatically. Um, and uh, in... Um, let's see, in, in about 1960, the uh, black family was um, not quite as healthy as uh, white I mean, in terms of um, the, uh, uh, single parenthood and that kind of thing. But it was close. Um, but, uh, but starting in 1960, the number of single mothers, un- unmarried mothers, um, having, uh, began to rise and rise dramatically, and some of your listeners may be familiar with the Moynihan, very famous Moynihan Report. That was published in 1965, uh, and at that point, 
about 24% of black uh, of black mothers or black births were to unmarried mothers. So that was 24%. And um, uh, at this point, I won't take you through the whole decline, but at this point it's 70%, which is just an unbelievable, uh, unbelievable data point that uh, I don't think anybody could have imagined in the time that Moynihan wrote his report. Um, the uh, We began to see more uh, decline in marriage rates or in, and rise in single motherhood among Hispanics uh, in uh, probably around 1980. That's now at about 50%. Uh, and among whites, the, it, it, uh, really we didn't see much change till well into the 80s. Um, and it was almost entirely among less educated, less skilled couples. Uh, and now the white out of birth out of wedlock birth rate is about twenty four percent so it's about where it was when Moynihan wrote uh with great alarm by the way about the decline of the black family so this is um goes across uh uh races, but it does seem to be not so much across educational and income levels. It's uh, relatively unusual to see a college-educated, uh, higher-income woman to have a child on her own. It happens, and it's gone up a little bit. I think uh, it's still probably around 8% of uh, births to, to educated women are to single or to unmarried women. But that's very low compared to what we see among uh, the other groups that I've mentioned. And you, on this, you, you just mentioned the word alarm. You talked about the alarm of this. Can you give us some of the factors for this decline and why you see this as a reason for great alarm and concern? So that, that is a very loaded question. It's one that uh, scholars have been debating, the question of why, why this happened. Um, and um, I, would, I think that the best guess at this point is that there were some very profound economic changes um, that began, well, in the 60s, but intensified later on, uh, where with the decline of the industrial uh, economy, uh, many, many of the working class or low-skilled men that I've been talking about, or, or uh, the couples that I've been talking about, uh, many of the men in those couples were working in factories uh, and those factories gave them fairly reliable uh, and well-paid enough jobs. And the middle class, as you've probably heard, the lower middle class was doing quite well. Uh, the working class um, called themselves middle class and for good reason. You know, they could afford a home and uh, and take care of the kids and uh, and have just one one of one of the couple working. You didn't have to have a full-time uh, second uh, income uh, to make it at the time. So there was this dramatic change in what was available in particular to unskilled men, uh, the kinds of jobs that were available. To, there was that. But there also was a cultural trans, uh, transition going on in the 60s, and which I uh, remember well from my young adulthood, uh, where uh, people were beginning to question the whole point of marriage, 
Um, this was partly related to the rise of feminism um, on the more extreme left, uh, and this certainly wasn't all feminist, but on the extreme left, there was an argument that marriage was um, a form of, um, well, almost of slavery for women, that it was holding them back, that women were under the thumb of their of their husbands, um, they weren't, you know, and, and, you know, there was something to be said for that. There were, you know, it was a time where women couldn't have their own mortgages, couldn't have their own credit cards. Well, not that we had credit cards so much then anyway, but, uh, the point is that there, you were expected to be part of a family with the husband as the head of the household. Uh, and uh, feminists rebelled against this. And I think um, even though many, well, even the majority of women did not call themselves feminists for most of, the, most of that time, and I think even today, uh, they still, uh, I think, absorbed that uh, assumption that women should have a more independent livelihood and more independence uh, in their identity as well. Uh, and that created just a lot more give uh, in uh, a lot more, I want to use the word flexibility, but that sounds too, uh, not as neutral as I'd like it. Much more freedom, uh, many people felt, to uh, leave a marriage if they, if they wanted to, uh, and even to have a child on their own, although the, the numbers at that point of women who were, who were doing that were, were quite small. So both those both those things were happening. It was a huge change in the economy, and also a large change in our assumptions about what marriage, um, what women's role in marriage should be, uh, and uh, what the marriage relationship ought to be as well. And that's a very important piece of this that I think we'll probably be coming back to in the course of our discussion. Well, I even know that there's been a, a push over the past few decades for women to focus on a career, like you said, to be independent. Yeah. I think it's there are a lot of positives when it comes to if a woman was in right. a bad marriage, she didn't have many options before. So being able to leave a bad marriage today, I think, is good. But of course, it took on this mentality among, like you're saying, that the feminist of the extreme left, that men were bad, that marriage was bad. And I wonder where that has left women today. I mean, when you see, in some ways, I think that there has been the pendulum swinging back a little bit. You even see celebrities staying in marriages, praising the the idea of motherhood. So I feel like it's coming mm-hmm. back a little bit. Do you think that the extreme feminism arm, feminist arm, uh, took it too far and therefore that's been negative towards women long term? Well, I think it's been, I, I, I agree with you, and I, but I think it's not just negative towards women. It's, I think it's been negative towards men as well. Um, and more highly skilled, more highly educated men have adapted uh, to the, you know, the demands from women for changes, and some of those changes were, I think, necessary. Uh, but I think it's been much harder on lower skilled men to not only find those stable jobs that I talked about before, but to understand the new roles because what's happened is that everything is under negotiation in marital relationships now and in actually all uh, male-female relationships. There, you know, we used to have these scripts 
and it was pretty clear what it meant to go on a date, what it meant to court somebody, what it meant to ask somebody to marry you, and what it meant to be married, and what the role of men were, and what the role of women were was, and whatever you know, whatever the problems with those scripts, it made a certain amount of uh, regularity and predictability in, in people's lives that they, as if for people who were not that flexible or didn't have the verbal skills to sort of rethink these things, uh, to, uh, it, you know, they were not in a position really to adapt to these new ways. So I've been convinced uh, that we've underestimated just how much the lack of clear roles and rules and norms um, in marriage has affected less educated uh, women and men uh, and has made made it more much more difficult for them to create lasting bonds. And this also brings up the question of cohabitation, sex before mm-hmm. marriage. How does that factor into people being able and being willing to commit? And do we find that the way that people interact through the technology that we have and also less of a restraint and less of a negative Mm -hmm. connotation with sex before marriage, has that actually been damaging towards two stable relationships? Yeah, well, that speaks to the same point that I was just making to a certain extent. Um, I think for uh, for people dating now, uh, it's so unclear what the uh, rules are, what the expectations are. I think that some of the uh, uh, less... Uh, egregious examples of the uh, th- that we've heard about dur- during the Me Too movement, like the Aziz Ansari example, for instance, has a lot to do with different with with a lack of clarity about what women expect, what man expects. I think that women, young women, were grew up in an environment that said, you know, you should have all the sex you want, you know, you're just like men that way, um, your casual sex is great, uh, if you, you know, they would add if you want it, but frankly, there was, I think, pressure, you know, the fact is there's pressure on women who maybe don't want to have sex on a first date to do so, um, if if a lot of their peers are. So I think a lot of those, uh, a lot of the loss of that script um, created problems I mentioned before for lower in, income and less skilled people, but also for uh, for everybody who was dating uh, and hoping to find a mate because you're, every time you meet somebody, you're trying to figure out what are their rules, what are they about, um, what is it they want. It's not clear anymore. Uh, so I think that does create a lot of uneasiness and a lot of uh, unhappiness of a different sort maybe than uh, my mother or my grandmother might have experienced in her marriage. But nevertheless, it's real and frustrating and difficult. And marriage itself, some would say, well, why does there need to be the actual certificate of marriage? So many people are committed and cohabitating and having children that way. I would say that's more of a European model. We see that in Europe very much. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we're seeing more with the upper class individuals, um, those who do have wealth, trying out, living together first, doing it that way. 
what have you found in your research and the change of people making committed relationships with each other, but not having the marriage certificate attached to it? Okay, so I think that um, among uh, educated couples, there is emerging a new script. I've seen this with my own daughters and their friends, uh, where it is expected that you'll live together. But it's seen among many of them that, maybe most of them even, that um, living together is a step towards marriage. In other words, it's part of the script that's leading ultimately to marriage. Um, For less educated couples, that's not the way it works. Living together is not a step towards. It's not a substitute for marriage. It's uh, simply, you know, well, I shouldn't say simply. It's complicated. It has to do with Very. whether you can afford <laughs> to live along, um, whether, you know, if somebody's just lost an apartment, it's cheaper uh, to live together. Uh, maybe somebody, maybe a woman gets pregnant without planning it, uh, as is often the case. Um, and so a baby is coming, so they're living together. But it, you need to understand that regardless of what's going on in, in Europe, and I'll get to that in a minute, uh, in the United States, cohabiting couples break up at a much higher rate than married couples. Uh, and if you have a child, when you're cohabiting, you are three times as likely to break up before that child is five than if you are um, married and have a child. Wow. So that's quite a difference. Yeah. It's a simple. It's a very unstable environment for children, um, and I mean, I could speculate for you, and I, but nobody knows for absolute sure that there's something about making a decision and making a promise, a vow, uh, in front of family and friends, um, or even without the family, for just making that vow, making that commitment, saying this is what we are. We are uh, aspiring towards permanence, um, uh, and we'll do all we can to achieve it. It's very different than a cohabitor uh, who kind of falls, it often falls into a relationship. I don't want to say that's true of all cohabitors. I think some, I guess some are committed, uh, but it's not the uh, normal script, shall we say, for cohabiting couples. Now, in Europe... Um, it's complicated. Again, it's, it depends which country we're talking about. There are countries where cohabitation seems to be almost the same uh, as marriage in terms of longevity, although, uh, and by the way, I mean, Americans are unique in how temporary or how, how uh, much their relationships, their romantic relationships break up. Um, so in... Sweden, for instance, uh, a couple that's living together is more likely to be together when their child is 15 than a married couple in the United <laughs> States. So we're talking about a very different culture. I think there must be, you know, and this is something I would love to study firsthand but haven't been able to. I suspect there's something in the culture that says, you have a child? Of course, you're a permanent couple. Well, you know, they, yes, they don't, they don't. Uh, see the need for a uh, 
a, a government certificate, official recognition from the government that they're married, but they do take their um, they do take their commitment to each other and to the family as seriously as Amer- Amer- Americans who marry. That seems to be the case. And again, you know, there's so many uh, notions about why that would be. But uh, you know, I think part of it again has to may have to do with the diversity in the United States. These, there, you know, people are growing up with very different ideas about these scripts, about what's expected, and we may need marriage uh, more to make a clearer statement about these things than some other more homogeneous uh, cultures. And so I want to talk about the application of this and what it means. I I think there's been a lot of research done on what this means for children. Children tend to do better when they're raised by their married mother and father, have less of a chance to be in poverty. Um, The financial side is is typically much better for children. But I also want to talk about just the happiness of men and women when they don't Mm -hmm. marry. Um, when there's confusion in dating, when, as you said, the scripts aren't the same, has this led to, do you think, general unhappiness as a whole? And, and what do you expect if this trend continues? What does this mean for singles who are aging? What does this mean for um, not having a family to care for you the same way if you don't have that nucleus family? Yeah. Yeah, well, this is a, a big concern I've written about fairly recently uh, about the how the rising number of never married uh, when you combine with the number of divorced and uh, cohabitors who have broken up, um, the number of people who don't clearly have family uh, to care for them as they get older um, and um, in my in my article alone uh, in it's called alone in City Journal I described um, a, a, a oncologist that I know a cancer doctor who was telling me that he's seeing an increasing number of men who come into his inner city hospital um, uh, particularly black men in that in the neighborhood he's in who have nobody with them and they, uh, you know, nobody to help them understand and deal with their prognosis. Uh, If they are admitted to the hospital, they have no visitors Uh, and often they die uh, with nobody claiming the body. So, you know, I think that that's kind of a symptom or a uh, a, a scene, a scenario that I think we're going to see more and more of. Uh, we've broken down this very fundamental human connection, uh, and um, yeah, friends are friends can help, and you can have all kinds of tight networks that can help a lot. But many people are not going to have that if they don't have family. Historically, and you know, across cultures, it's been kin, relatives who take care of the sick and, and elderly, um, or at least attend to them uh, and their needs. So, yes, that is a very scary thing. I think we'll be seeing much more in the way of lo- what are called in Japan lonely deaths, people who die with nobody uh, to even tell about their death. Um, 
so that's you know that's the kind of long term thing. As for children, the data is pretty clear at this point. Although there's again some dispute about cause and selection and causation here. Um, children who grow up with a with a single mother and without their fathers generally, or with minimal contact with their fathers, um, show all sorts of disadvantages in life. They are more prone to health problems, to behavioral problems, to poor poor levels of achievement from school, they're less likely to go to college, and if they do go to college, they're less likely to graduate. Um, I, you know, you frequently hear about uh, parents who are fighting so much about money, divorced parents who are fighting so much about money, that they can't come to an agreement of who's going to pay for child's college, uh, and then the kid has to drop out. So you see that kind of thing a lot. So that's one kind of effect. Uh, and then just the, um, the kinds of networks that uh, uh, people from more intact homes can create of uncles and aunts and friends of the family, um, get, they get uh, disrupted. Uh, and they're just not the same dense uh, connections uh, that you can sometimes and hopefully get with intact families. Um, so the children, no, do not do as well as, they, as we want. Uh, and one of, the, one of the reasons I think this is so worrisome uh, is that because we're seeing much more marital breakdown, much more divorce and uh, single-parent homes among lower-income kids, uh, it means that they're doubly disadvantaged. Not only do they... Uh, lose the benefits that come with the married uh, with married parents, but they're poorer to begin with. And I uh, think that there's uh, plenty of evidence that this has affected our uh, inequality rates of inequality, uh, and um, it's, you know very under under reported, under appreciated part of our of our poverty and inequality story. So then this is the final question I have for you then. So knowing this data and this research, which you brought out, of course, children can't make a decision for their parents on getting married. Um, that's something that they that is out of their control. But what encouragement would you give uh, people listening to this program on what they should do? Let's say, um, for example, I'm single. Other people out there are single. It's Valentine's yeah. Day. What do you tell your daughter and your daughter's friends? What? So mm-hmm. based on this, and you talk about the dire outcomes that we're seeing and what could possibly happen, what should people do? Well, um, that's a very difficult uh, question to answer. It's remember, you know, what I'm describing are broad t- trends, um, and they're worrisome trends for the country. It doesn't tell us that much of about each of us as individuals. Um, I do think, though, uh, what I would recommend, especially for younger women is that they uh, take their future as uh, if, if they're assuming that they want to have children or think they might want to, that they take their future partner, husband, very seriously uh, from 
the time that they're in their 20s. I mean, there was a tendency, I think, when you're just out of college to think you've got forever. You've got such a long time to play around a date, to, you know, to be single. Um, and it happened, you know, time flies. <laughs> it happens very it quickly. It sure does. <laughs> uh, and um, I, hate to, I hate to think that we have told young women, oh, don't marry too young, don't you know, don't, don't worry about that. Women don't need men and men don't have to, you know, you don't, you can do it by yourself. Uh, and then find themselves by their thirties and wondering, well, gee, am I going to find somebody? And I think most do, but plenty don't. Uh, and the stories of young women in their late thirties and forties who, uh, have been disappointed on this road to adulthood, um, are plentiful uh, and very sad. So I think the best thing I can offer uh, is for us to remember to be clear with younger people about what they're, what, what they're going to want. Um, we don't want to, you know, impose I, my generation of boomers very reluctant to impose any life vision on their kids. And I think uh, that their kids paid the price, paid a price for that. Some of them did, at any rate. Uh, the fact is, they know full well that what's given them the most joy in life uh, is, and and difficulty as well. Uh, the most richness in life is um, is their um, family and their children, and they have not passed on that wisdom, or they're reluctant to pass on that vis- wisdom to their children. And I hate to think that um, by refusing or neglecting to talk about that, um, we've disappointed a lot of a lot of young people. Well, Kay, we so appreciate you joining us and talking about your research and the importance of marriage. Um, so thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you all for joining us today. Before you go, I did want to let you know of another great podcast you should subscribe to in addition to She Thinks. It's called Problematic Women, and it's hosted by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans, where they both sort through the news to bring stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, that is, women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. Every Thursday, hear them talk about everything from pop culture to policy and politics by searching for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode so your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent at Women's Forum. Thanks for listening.